Hi, I'm Bushra Tafrato, and you're listening to In Praise of the Margin podcast, a space where I talk to researchers, scholars, and practitioners on the ideas that mobilize their work. Some of my research interests are on topics related to socio-spatial inequalities, politics of space, and the practices of inclusion and exclusion. Today's guest is Françoise Berges. She's a writer, researcher, historian, activist, and public educator. She's the author of many books, and among her latest publications are Un Feminisme Décolonial, published by La Fabrique in 2019, The Wombs of Women, Race, Capital, Feminism, an English translation published by Duke University Press in 2020, In Théorie Féministe de la Violence, published by La Fabrique in 2020, and her most recent book with Somboy Vrenon, De la Violence Coloniale en Espace Public, published by Shed in 2021, which will be the theme of our discussion today. She has collaborated on a number of other projects outside of her academic journey. She's the co-founder of the association Décoloniser les Arts and was engaged in many other projects and initiatives in La Réunion, France and beyond against slavery, extractivism, settler colonialism and imperialist institutions. So you currently released a book with Somboy Vrenon called De la violence coloniale dans l'espace public or Colonial Violence in the Public Space, a collection of texts and analysis combined with visuals done by Somboy Vrenon of La Porte which is located in the 12th arrondissement in Paris, what you called the Colonial Triangle, where three major monuments display colonial history on stone and sculptures. I want to know what inspired you to write on this location while you walk us through this Colonial Triangle. Well, it follows, you know, all the year of 2020, you putting down statue after the murder of George Floyd. In France, there was no, no statue was pulled down, even though, the, of course, everyone, the government started to, to scream about it. It was just in Martinique. So anyway, I was starting to, to think about it. And I was invited by the young editor, uh, Lydia Marouche, uh, who started, you launched this uh, publishing house, Shed Publishing, to write something. The colonial triangle is interesting because the 12 arrondissement in Paris is also one of the arrondissements with the seven that carry most, you know, names of streets, squares, and buildings that carry colonial names. Mm -hmm. So there is something in that arrondissement that was interesting. The triangle was very interesting because of, of the Palais de la Porte Dorée, which, which was the Museum of the Colony and now the Museum of the National History of Immigration in France, and, and which was, in fact, at the entry of the huge 1931 colonial exhibition. So it was already a very important, of course, site. But what I call the triangle, one angle of the triangle is France, uh, Athena, the, the goddess Athena, as France carrying peace to the world. The other angle will be the museum, the colonial, I mean, former colonial museum. And the last, uh, uh, Order will be that monument to Jean-Baptiste Marchand. Mm -hmm. And that was, allow me, because of that concentration, to develop something about colonial violence in the city. From that example, I could talk then in the way in which monument and statue contribute to the racial uh, segregation and to the racial message of, of a city like Paris which is, of course, always described as a romantic city, the city of love, uh, you know, the beautiful city, which, which is also in a way, uh, but in fact, it's a very hostile city to many people. In your analysis of La Porte Dorée, you studied the sculptures and you highlighted the elements which 
make these sculptures, for example, the presence of the military, the extraction of, of natural resources and, and the names of, the, of these resources that were extracted from those areas and including forced labor, exploitation of bodies. And we continue still seeing this exploitation to this day. And these inequalities have um, a colonial history, which the West continues to conceal through discussions on development or humanitarian aid towards what they made into poor countries. How can we fight this narrative that says the global South exists because of the West and replace it with one that highlights how the West and its richness exist because of the exploitation and the extraction of natural goods and resources, which are carved on La Porte Dorée? Well, I would say that, you know, I call it the imperialist way of life, you know, a certain good life or certain, you know, possibility of living well, of getting avocados in the winter. And, you know, having even, even I will say the daily thing that you, the tap water and it's, it's drinking water, you know, I mean, all the, the things that make a, a comfortable life, a daily comfortable life for, for many. This rest was made possible on the exploitation, historical exploitation of other people. Sugar arrived on the table of the French people with coffee and, and, uh, and chocolate and tobacco arrived because of slavery. Mm-hmm. And then later, you could have also rubber or you know, other, other thing. And today you have, will have oil, uh, gas, and also um, cobalt for your uh, you know, phone, smartphone. And everything, all this, you know, is made possible mm-hmm. because of the exploitation. There is no other way. Capitalism rest. I mean, there was, this is a capitalist way of life, but I say, I call it imperialist way of life because it rests also on, as you say, intervention, arm intervention, mm-hmm. or, you know, army protecting French uh, huge multinational forcing, you know, the exploitation. Just one center recent example, uh, we have, uh, as you know, a presidential campaign, and there is a lot of talk about nuclear industry. And so that should be sovereign and the people should have access. And this is, in fact, protecting also the environment because it's not as polluting as, let's say, coal. In all this discussion, even among the Greens, there is no, never, you know, a, a word about the fact that without the uranium extracted in Niger, which is devastating Niger, the country, when I say devastating, contaminating the soil for decades, contaminating people, or, you know, including destroying a lot of way of life. Without this, there will be no nuclear industry in France. So the way of talking about the nuclear industry is already accepting the fact that you are exploiting and devastating and extracting a component that is essential for mm-hmm. nuclear industry. As if, you know, you talk about nuclear industry in France, as if this is, you know, emerged from France, you know, mm-hmm. in kind of mysterious way. Well, is this link that we have to constantly bring to the table, to show them the intrication, the constant integration that neoliberal globalization has built, and of course, uh, how it replicate in a different way, because things have changed a lot, but already, you know, what the colonial, quote-unquote, globalization put into effect. This also links back to what you wrote about how these statues reflect this narrative, the city itself just asks us what kind of narrative um, the authorities are trying to maintain and um, how can a city claim to be, for example, inclusive 
if um, if it is only open to certain bodies and not others and a city that celebrates violence and also turn it into a touristic attraction and a historical landmark when you wrote putting statues and monuments in the public is a political choice and it reflects willfulness can you expand a bit on this notion of willfulness uh, of the west to display and celebrate violence Yes, a Western city, I mean, in Western Europe and elsewhere, we're already built, you know, on the wealth accumulated by exploitation and slavery. I mean, huge, you know, building palace that we have forgotten, but they are there. And then what I say, they are all bourgeois, masculine city. I mean, it was already built on the exclusion of the working class. That's, that's very clear. And what I call the fact that this monument is very important because when, for instance, people were telling, I mean, historian, white men, I mean, mostly of them, but also white women, uh, telling me this statue are history. No, they are not history. History is not statue. Statue are the, a way of memorializing in the public space, making that choice. So they are choices, right? And these choice are always made at a certain moment in history. So it's very important to understand when this statue was made, by whom, who was behind it, with the artist, why this aesthetic, and when it was also inaugurated, it's mostly men, but even if we had women, it would not change much. Because the point is the message that this statue carry or monument. And they carry a message of domination. Okay, you got philosopher and writer, you will tell me, but even nonetheless, I mean, the, the way the city is, is I mean, the, that aesthetic is an aesthetic that is, you know, in fact, connected with the narrative of domination, exploitation, racism, sexism, patriarchy. These are white men in Paris, you know, usually in a martial posture. And so the masculinity, it's white masculinity, uh, military masculinity, they are always connected with massacre, genocide, you know, rape, theft, looting. And we are showing them as, you know, heroes. And for me, they look like, you know, the vigils, like the, the, the reminder you know, reminding us, even if we don't know who they are exactly, we walk by men, white men standing there, and always in, a, as I say, militaristic way. It's a visual culture that nonetheless we see it's totally surrounding us, and and it's habituation. It's so we get habituated to the fact that this is there, and so this, this is why some people can say, "Oh, they have always been there. This is history. Why do you want to take them?" No. So that memorialization in the public space is constantly political choice. In a sense, also, it's very important for the Palais Doré, the, the, the Museum of the Colony, of this huge, effectively, representation of extraction, of forced labor, and, and exploitation uh, of women and men, of you know, black and brown people. It, it's bringing back you know, memory what is happening today. But this is naturalizing exploitation. You know, it's shown like this is normal. I mean, the, the Palais Doré, it's quite uh, well done, if I may say. It's a, some kind of, you know, oh, yeah, it's an image, it's a representation. And I walk by, like, I would walk back by a huge painting, a huge mural. We, you know, I will get used to it. So it's naturalizing. It's become there. But why is it there? If this was done, it can be undone. It was done as a very moment. 1931, uh, France wanted to show its incredible colonial empire. But so it's hiding also what was happening in the colony, insurrection, rebellion, resistance. 
and already also in France itself or in Europe, the constitution of anti-imperialist league, anti-colonial leagues, of journals and, you know, voices. So it's one narrative. It's that narrative. It's naturalizing exploitation and domination. And especially since many of these institutions, they talk about reconciliation and reparation. But can a museum itself or an institution such as Le Palais d'Ori be considered as a place where the state can repair the history? It's a very important question because, as I say, the building itself, you know, it's a message. Architecture is a message. It's not like a neutral thing. And in which, you know, I will be able inside to tell the story of my ancestors and everything. The master house is already decorated in a way or set up on its architecture in a way that already, you know, in fact, censor my own story. What I'm going to say in the living room of the master house, you know, I would be in a corner and perhaps, you know, then I would be given like two words to say. Mm. I will not be able. The architecture is already a message of domination, patriarchy. I cannot see how we can do that. And then after your question is like, what is a museum for? Is a museum, could be the museum in place. I don't think the museum museum in Europe, as they are, can be this space yet. They can be a space that, after all, if they are public museum, we can claim them. We can we have the right to enter them. We have the right to change, to say what we want. We'll not, never be a decolonial museum. Mm-hmm. The architecture of the decolonial museum, we have to think about it. You know, we cannot just enter a place that is as already built with, you know, by something in mind, I mean, mm-hmm. too an architecture of domination, as I say quite often, any space you enter, you can already read the way in which race, gender, and class are inscribed in the space itself. Mm-hmm. You know, who sits in the front, who sits, how it's being, you know, drawn out. And this is why a community of resistance want to imagine different agora, different ways of sitting and exchanging words. And then what would be the content? Do we have to follow the Western ways of new, you know, object after object and story after object? And then, you know, so these are very important questions that we have to ask. But I don't think the museum as it is today, as they are, will be decolonial museum. But they can be space of contestation because they are space that we have the right to enter. Mm-hmm. But in ways also without illusion. Absolutely no illusion. Mm-hmm. The institution itself, you know, with cleaning the place, with guarding the place, usually women of color, right? With with guarding, with at the top, you know, with deciding what show will be. You're gonna see just white people, just white, and perhaps you know, they're gonna pick one or two. The structure itself can only repeat the hierarchy. Even if they do a show about a black artists or, you know, even today museum in Europe, they are all decolonial things, right? They all want to, to repair. But reparation is a, much, it's a very important question that cannot be, tri- you know, trivialized like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, the political preparation in the 21st century should be a very urgent. It's not just, you know, to, to give us a show. This reminds me of the Humboldt Forum which was recently inaugurated in the city. It's not an old building. It has been renovated recently. And it is a space where the Black, the Indigenous, and all people of color are othered. You walk into a space that is fully dominated by white guilt. There's a, the massive sign at the entrance, which is holding a quote from the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. 
And the objects are just trapped and surround this quote, and they're all trapped in glass. And I wondered, what was the role of those looted objects from Africa and the discussion that this institution is initiating with its visitors, since they're associating reparation with white guilt? White yeah. guilt is a very important strategy to me, uh, remain at center stage. Or look at me, go away, we don't need you, you yeah. know? So this is another way to, to remain center stage. It's very important for the West to remain center stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mise-en-scene is already telling you, you know, so they're going to cry, and what do you want us to do? You know, yeah. they cry, cry if you wish, but that does not change. Where is social justice? Effectively, real reparation, which means dismantling the master house. No, no, nothing to do with the white guilt. This is, it's, it's not important. The question is like, what can you do as white people mm-hmm. build, I mean, constructed, fabricated as white? Are you uh, capable of contributing to the dismantling of that unjust system? Mm-hmm. But you know, if you cry, it does not matter. It has no, no effect whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. And in the third monument, which is the Monument Marchand, you studied the colonial expedition of Jean-Baptiste Marchand in Congo-Nile. And through this monument, again, we see uh, a carved narrative of violence through manual labor, the oppressed and the exploited bodies, extracted resources again. And it's another example of a virile narrative where bravery only belongs to the Western soldier and the combatant against barbarism. And you mentioned the exclusion of, of the people who were exploited during the expedition, a colonial celebration without information, and it is still rising in Paris. You mapped the history of this monument and the expedition, including how it is still maintained till this day. In 2020, a, a group of black activists wrote Decolonize Paris on it, which was removed by the municipality. And I sometimes wonder what does participation mean to public authorities, because this is a form of participation itself. It is a mode of expression on institutional landmarks, a way to protest and to make something visible. And I want to know, what does participation mean to you? Well, they are very important. To go back also to, your, to the first part of your question, I think it's very important that we retrain our eyes. What is under my eyes and I don't see? And this is so important because everything from the school on, you know, like from when we are little and continue, is to teach us how to look away. These are not just, you know, statues of stone. They tell a story. Those who carry, you know, on the Marchand Monument, they are men, African men, half naked, and then you have the colonial soldier, and then you have, of course, the white officers. So you could look at that and say, okay, it's a representation of, in a way, what happened. First, you don't see, evidently, effectively, all the money behind, who is behind, why do you have this expedition, what is the objective of the expedition, is, again, as you say, the narrative of heroic things through the jungle, you know, and some things about, you know, dark Africa and, you know, dangerous. Where are the women? And they were there, you know, those African women who were cultivating, the, uh, you know, food, that, et cetera, et cetera. So that expedition was, would not have been able without African women and men on the way for the three years they walk, uh, Marchand and his expedition walk. And of course, the question of forced labor. So the, my point again is like, this is under my eyes. How do I read it in a way that not what is presented to me? And how I do pull every thread so the narrative becomes much more complex and this expedition within the vast colonial story 
of you know colonizing Africa. The question of the army with military expedition today or military intervention, Western military intervention. So the constant, you know, reading in the present. So I'm not interpreting the past from the present as the anti-decolonial are saying. I'm looking at, in fact, how this was fabricating, consent was fabricating in the past, and the echo it can give me for the fabrication of today, fabrication of domination, of consent to domination, to racism, to inequalities. I mean, there was also the intervention of the statue of Galliani with another colonial criminal. And in June last year, we threw a black piece of textile on it. These are very important interventions because they rupture neutral things. We say, okay, you know what you're looking at as a criminal. Ask yourself, is it normal to have a criminal in the middle of the city like that for everyone to see? Do you have statue of Hitler in the world? Do you have statue of, you know, other dictators? No. So why when it's colonial history or slavery, it's, it's normal to have these people? I find that very important to say that quite often the statue were contested. So because, again, you know, when we are told, oh, they have always been there. No, they were quite often contested. And there is a, a story of contestation of monument and, and statue. The state has constantly taken out statue, put new one. It's a political art, so it can be undone. It is made by human beings. It can be undone because it was made in the name of injustice, domination, colonialism, racism. So it can be undone. And they're usually related to the notion of public property, and I tend to question what is public property in this context? The cities are deeply segregated space. I mean, they are nice, but for, you know, if you are middle class, bourgeois, you can go around, and these, you know, are made for consumption, and now you have nice cafe and nice park, but they are in incredible space forbidden to young Arab and young black uh, young men because they can be killed and anywhere they know they cannot enter they cannot enter in some shops if you're veil, a veil woman i mean a lot of spaces are you know forbidden to you and there is curfew you don't need pandemic for curfew there is constant curfew women young blacks arabs trans and sex workers and queer so decolonize the city is already showing how this segregation is being made and how for instance city centers of city or some neighborhood are made for the enjoyment of the middle class with bio with shop for bio food and, and yoga space and then you have the space where the people who made that possible must live and there they will not have parks they will not have you know the same kind of environment the workers whether cleaning women cooks, uh, delivery young men in space that are polluted, contaminated, no transport for uh, the comfort of the middle class. In France, I mean, the white middle class will say, oh, we want also women in the public space because it's part of their understanding of what is feminism, you know, their feminism. I mean, you got, for instance, in Paris, almost 300 statues altogether and only, you know, 30 or 40 women. I don't want like swearing women, you know. That's not the question. Decolonizing the space is not adding. Because even a statue of Toussaint Louverture in the middle of Paris, you know, the, the revolutionary, the Haitian revolutionary, will not change the structure. And even white feminism, certain, uh, white feminism will absolutely be accomplice to the militarization of the city to protect white women and so more, uh, more civilians. It's also constantly a calling for repression, for more police, for more carceral feminism, for protection. 
But in the meantime, it's building society which is cruel, brutal, and to black and brown people. So they contribute to the effectively a certain public space that is white, very clean of any presence that will disturb them. I'd like to extend this to a question that I've asked you on a recent presentation, which was about universities, how university is a white institution. I'd like to, to quote Bell Hooks, who said that the classroom remains the most radical space of possibility in the academy. How can we bring forward these discussions while they actually challenge or can dismantle the pillars of these institutions? Decolonization also asks us to reconsider the notions of knowledge, who produces it and who validates it. Yeah, this is uh, very important because how do we act in institutions that are structured to, in, in fact, repeat and educate us to be, in fact, silent and to be silenced? And, uh, and Bell looks, uh, you know, uh, arrest in power uh, was right. What I will say is like we also to have to appreciate how we enter the institution. If we enter alone, it's very, you know, we're going to be crushed. How do we construct collective, collective intervention, solidarity when we enter? And there will be moments when we have to boycott the institution, to refuse to enter or to refuse to be a complice of what's happening. So it's a constant, effectively, fight with the institution. And we cannot just turn our back on the institution completely because effectively school or university are where our brothers, sisters and children are going. So we cannot say, oh, it's white institution, we don't care, and we turn our back to it because... This is where, effectively, these kids will be humiliated. It's very important to fight to, to get you know, different uh, education. In, in France, for instance, I fought also for bringing uh, colonial slavery in the textbook. It's a constant fight. In 2021, we have not fully succeeded. You know, it's not, I cannot say, oh, this is done. You know. On the other side, especially in France right now, you really have an amazing. But we have to, to constantly fight. I'm also very concerned with school. School is, you know, like where the little and the, where the children are already disciplined and taught not to be curious. School is a disciplinary space. You are taught not to challenge authority. The girls are, in fact, trained into submission. The boys are trained into domination. You know, I'm saying banal thing, but that's not changed. This is a, a very important site of uh, resistance. So we cannot leave the, the children of our community uh, to this uh, absolutely space where they get humiliated, disciplined, and their curiosity is being killed. And curiosity is absolutely essential in decolonial education for uh, relearning, unlearning to learn again. Mm-hmm. This also connects with what you speak about a lot, which is universalism and what it means. Yes, universalism is a lie. It's a lie because it rested on the view that we are the universal and the other are the particular. Uh, but anyway, we are uh, we and we are the one who understood liberty, who understood uh, freedom, who understood uh, equality, who understood women's rights. Everything was born there. So we have uh, what you know, uh, Aimé Césaire, Franz Fanon, even Amilcar Cabral, and all the pushed towards what they call a new humanism. And effectively, how do we uh, learn to live with this incredible, uh, different uh, and uh, way of understanding past, present, future, of understanding, you know, like what indigenous people are telling us? But I, there is an expression that 
in the township of South Africa or in South America or also in the slum of India is humanizing the world. But humanizing the world, I think it's, it's quite a, in an expression that resonates for me because it, it showed that the world as it is today, built by racism and capitalism and patriarchy, is not a human world in the sense of full of dignity and how that system is absolutely fabricating vulnerability to premature death. The fact that children in the global south are born with already respiratory disease or other disease because of poverty or pollution, that will effectively be, they will not have, you know, life expectancy as a kid in the West. They will not have access to the same education, to assist, they don't eat. And when you don't have a good food, it has an impact on your on your development, what we call psychic and physical development. So all this humanizing the world seems to me a very important, that we are not, as you know, philosopher Sylvia Winter say, we are still living under the age of the man, capital M, who is, you know, white and Christian. And so we have to build that fully human world connecting uh, with uh, plants, animals, seas and rivers, Racial capitalism is also uh, building a world where we suffocate. First, because of censorship, because we are not able to tell our story, there is silencing, constant silencing, but also because there is a vast air pollution. People are dying, according to the World Health Organization, of air pollution than any other cause. So there is condemnation, there is of, you know, of, of to, to premature death by racial capitalism, extraction, uh, deforestation, and everything. It's a politic of what I call unbreathing. There is no right to breathe. Very interesting proposition. And then how, what is the content we're going to give to that? What kind of social organization we're going to need? And differently, what kind of economy? What kind of a, a connection between people? How we're going to decriminalize the way, in fact, life are criminalized? Or solidarity is being criminalized? As you know, in Europe, solidarity is being criminalized. This is a continent. Europe, a continent of political death uh, at its border. But they are naturalized. How medias and government are building and are naturalizing hostility. That expression, humanizing the world and how we're going to do it. And again, to go back to your things about white guilt, what are they doing in their country? You know, what, what do you do? How do you contribute to the dismantling of the master house and of the. So, just for instance, if I may, I give an example. Arm industry is very important in France. It's the second exporter of arms in the world of weapons. What are weapons for? For death, for war, you know. And they are selling it, for instance, to Saudi Arabia. For what? To destroy the Yemen as we speak. And or to repress your own people, as they, you know, because they are selling it also to Egypt. Arms have never been to bring peace. So when, you know, white feminists are saying, what can we do? And so on, I say, well, you can have it in your own country. You can stop exploitation, target the arm industry, target it every day, you know, do something. And when the government say, oh, this is like thousands of jobs and you're going to destroy them, you say, yes, yes, because working in a death industry, it cannot be good. So you have to find effective alternative for these people. As I said, unpack when we, when we leave. What is it? Why do I live like that? And how is where I live contributing to the misery, exploitation, ex extraction of the world? Why guilt that goes also, as you were saying, with a white savior syndrome? Uh, I'm going to say uh, Afghan woman, 
no, do something in your country. You know, do so, so that refugee find effectively a refuge. An actual home. Refuge, yeah. you know. This has a massive role in dividing us as well. I'm curious what you think would be the ways in which we can find each other and create that solidarity which is criminalized and empower each other. Yeah, I mean, you know, dividing to rule is a very whole strategy, and it works. And there are many strategies. In France, what we are witnessing now, it's a neoliberal multiculturalism. Current government is, uh, as understood that by, you know, accepting some multiculturalism to pacify. So as I was saying, you know, in Guadeloupe, I think they, are, they, they were incredible, they are general strike. The government sent uh, special forces there. And then in Paris, you got Josephine Baker in the Pantheon. Yeah. Or there is no water in Guadeloupe for the last three years. You know, like people have no water, like really concretely, literally no access to water. And then you invite young black and brown artists to the Elysee and you serve them champagne. So this form of uh, what a friend Olivier Marbeuf we call liberal anti-racism. Everyone is anti-racist now, like everyone has become feminist now, right? So everyone is a feminist, even far-right people, and everyone is an anti-racist, right? How uh, neoliberal multiculturalism work? You know, some form of recognition so that there is, again, non-recognition, yeah. you know? So you recognize to erase uh, other voices. You isolate these voices, or these are subversive and radical. Don't listen to them, they are bad. Uh, the precarization, the incredible precarization of artists, for instance, of color. And when they are totally in precarity, offering some of them some, you know, money through grant or whatever. So my image is like they are uh, making us, you know, dying of, 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 of thirst, right? We have nothing to drink and we are like dying in the desert, let's say. And they come and they give us like a drop of water and they keep, you know, the bottle of water and we are happy should not be the fabrication of the time that we are dying of this. This is a problem, not that the final will give us a, a drop of water. So uh, we are constantly, I mean, in terms of solidarity, to, to constantly deconstruct the different strategy of pacification, yeah. a point of pacification. So constantly building collective, uh, defining and taking the risk. I mean, we have also to teach each other that they, if you fight, you take a risk. So how are we going to rebuild a refuge and sanctuaries where you can go? The fatigue of, you know, militarism and so on. Or the fear that you're going to lose my job. Because besides a divided world, it's also isolating people. Well, if you're alone in front of pressure on you, it's more difficult to you know, stand up. If you don't have beyond you structure that will help you. We know that, for instance, in the workplace, unions are very important for that. The strike by a cleaning woman I followed here, you know, black uh, woman, it was also because they had a union beside them, you know, that, that also told them what to do, how to do, or could, you know, call on lawyers to, you know, to confront things like that. Otherwise, I mean, if you are alone, this is a machine in front of you. And we have, on the side of the oppressed, we have developed for centuries structure to which we can go. To go back to what you are saying about education, we have to develop alternative space of where we can have debate or we can have discussion, transmission of history. We had one in Paris, like Colony uh, Slash, and 
it closed. And I can tell you, we feel that absence because we need places to talk to each other about what you are saying, how to overcome division, how to overcome isolation. We have more and more to think about building refuge and sanctuary for ourselves. We may have also to learn when to hide and when to become public, when to be visible and when to be invisible and constantly assess what we should do, but assess collectively and when we retreat, but to rebuild our strength. Again, uh, what are the tools, uh, the multiple uh, tools of resistance and the diverse structure of resistance, which um, some are new, but some of them have been always there, you know, marching in the street at one moment, uh, uh, painting things on a monument, posting things around the city against femicide or racism, taking, uh, you know, the powerful to court, uh, publishing also uh, books for kids and for teenagers, not just for us. In the uh, activist world, we tend to think of all of us as adults, but uh, we have to think about the kids yeah. and the teenager. We have really to be to listen to them and to see what they need. Thank you so much, Françoise. That is always a cathartic exercise to listen to you speaking. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and thanks again for taking the time and space to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can write to me on Instagram and Twitter or at Bushra at imprisethemargin.com. Stay tuned and see you next time.